Tell you what, let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to jump in uh, to the text this morning. Father, uh, we love you, um, and we want to love you more. We're never as happy as, as when we are close to you, and so um, with everything that's good in us, um, but is also weak, we just want to kind of cling to you, and we want to know more about you this morning. We want to sense your presence. We want to kind of recommunicate our desire to be with you. We want you to kind of help us burn away the dross and to take the stuff out of our life that keeps us from you. And we're here together as a, a body of believers, as people that are really seeking you together. And just let us draw strength from that. This is your plan. Uh, it's your thing. It's what you've created. And we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, we're in John 15. This morning we've been going through the book of John and for like over a year. Uh, and we're just now like at John 15, which is one of my all-time favorite uh, passages of the Bible, chapter 15 of John, and it's, it's a really famous passage because it's very memorable, and it's, it's got an eloquence to it, it's got a, a poetry to it, especially in the Greek that doesn't come across in the English, but it's, it's just kind of one of those hallmark passages like um, Psalm 23 or, or, or something like that, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, etc. Um, but what it is, John 15, as we get here, is one of the, it's the last of the seven kind of great I am statements of the Gospel of John, where Jesus kind of emphatic, emphatically declares what his identity is, who he is, and he does it borrowing language that kind of puts him uh, on par with God. It's language that gets him into trouble. It's language that makes uh, the religious leaders of his day want to stone him to death because of blasphemy, that he's claiming an exalted status, taking kind of the name of God. And this is kind of one of the last of those great I am, this is the last great I am statement. And he does it in terms of a metaphor. And so if you're in John 15, this is cool artwork, by the way, that Connie Gabbert did for the, this kind of four-week series that we're doing on John. So um, if you know Connie, you can tell her that was pretty cool artwork. Um, but here's John 15. Read along with me if you can. Uh, John 15, verse 1, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may be even more fruitful. And you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine." Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And then he kind of culminates it by saying it very clearly here. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. The, the backdrop to this story, the context to this metaphor really, is something we have to get so that we can understand how the, the metaphor clarifies. I mean, just razor sharp something. When you use a metaphor... You're not teaching kind of in the traditional way. There's two types of teaching. There's passing on information that you don't have so that you will have that information, uh, so that you will pass a test, so that you'll be more adept at doing the math for a space shuttle so that it doesn't crash, those kinds of things. It's, it's educating so that you can be filled up with knowledge, with information. And there's a different kind of teaching and education, and that's really what Jesus is getting at here. And this kind of teaching and education is, is not trying to add more knowledge per se, but to take everything you know 
and to craft it in such a way, put it in such a way that it bends and alters and, and changes the, the grid you have for seeing life, the, the lenses that you look through, that, that your paradigm will be altered. And because that paradigm is altered, everything changes. It's, it's motivational, it's influential, it's persuasive. And this is kind of a power of teaching, a power that teaching has to fundamentally change somebody's life. Not just add more information to who you are, but to change, kind of create a before and after because something has been so clarified that you have an aha moment. Ah, I get it now. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, I never understood it like that before. Now I, I mean, have you ever had an aha moment? This is the kind of teaching that Jesus is going after here. Um, He's talking to his disciples. It's right before he's going to die. He's trying to clarify with them. And he gives a metaphor that just tries to just boil it down so clear that they have an aha moment. They go, oh, okay, we really get this thing. We kind of get it. We understand it now. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to change everything. Um, it's not more teaching about uh, the Torah or this or that. It's, it's putting it in such a way that's unmistakable. And what Jesus is kind of starting with is he's starting with the whole, um, the whole idea of, of life. We are naturally starting from a, a, a frame of reference that is naturally self-reliant. So I want to kind of draw up for you here and just say this is kind of like a tree and a branch. And this is, this is us, okay? We're self-reliant and we have pain aversion behaviors and we avoid pain, we seek pleasure, we always kind of have a filter that we can grid things through and we know what is going to help us achieve our goals and, and what is going to hurt. Like it, it makes sense that way. And we do that naturally. Like my kids, God, I don't have to teach them that. You know, hey, if you cheat your sister out of a toy, you'll have more toys. Like, like I don't have to teach them how to like work towards self, right? And so we, we kind of are naturally self-reliant and that's where we start. We don't naturally trust God. We don't naturally have faith in God. We naturally trust ourselves. We naturally look to ourselves. Um, I have to take care of myself. What's the, isn't there like a cliche about I? I have to look after, I don't know, what's the other cliche? Somebody. You know what I'm talking about? No, you don't because nobody's tracking me. Like, uh, I feel like there's a cliche that's like something about looking out for me. Anyways, Look out for number one. Is that it? Maybe that's it. It's a song. There's probably a song about it. Anyways. So this metaphor starts kind of with this self-reliant position that we're in. And we, in this grid, look at God as either a help or a hindrance. Okay? This is our starting point. And we're not going to budge. And now we're going to evaluate God. Look, are you going to help me achieve my own ends? Or are you going to hinder me from achieving my own ends? Is this good for me or is this bad for me? Who you are, you standing there, the things you're telling me to do, all of that, we're going to filter through this grid of, is it going to help me achieve my own ends or not? That's, that's how self-reliance kind of looks at it. Let me read to you something that Ryan, I think we have it on the screen, something Reinhold Niebuhr wrote uh, in his book, The Nature and Destiny of Man. I took a, a whole class on Niebuhr and it's fascinating how he was able to articulate this felt reality of original sin and and what it does to kind of our psyche. And listen to what he says. He says this, The truth is that man is tempted 
by the basic insecurity of human existence to make himself doubly secure and by the insignificance of his place in the total scheme of life to prove his significance. Let me read that again. The truth is that man is tempted by the basic insecurity of human existence to make himself doubly secure and by the insignificance of his place in the total scheme of life to prove his significance. Niebuhr wanted to juxtapose these things. He says, God has put eternity in the hearts of man, yet we are finite creatures. There's finitude. It's, we're limited. We're boxed in. We're not really in control, and, and we waste away, but yet we know what it's like to, to, be, to be above that and to have kind of a different idea of what could be, where we're, we're maximized, and it's full, and it's, it's, it's all there. Right? It's ideal, it's utopian. So these two things play in tension and they create insecurities and they, they create this drive, this need to be significant. I realized uh, when I was in my 20s that it's real interesting. Like You can break anybody down by insecurities. Anybody. Um, you, you just look at them long enough and you can begin to kind of put your finger on things about the way they feel about their body, the way they worry about their health or their age, the way they, they worry about their lack of education or that in being so educated, they're really nerdy and no one likes them. Um, like they're insecure about their extroversion or they're insecure about their introversion and, and people don't like me because I, I, I'm not confident. And they're, it, whatever it is, you can put your finger on fears that we all innately have. I mean, we all, we all have stuff where we feel weak and we feel less than and we know we're not the way we ought to be and we know, we're not, we know that we're not what we wish we were. And so we create that mask, we create that false self and we try and keep funneling energy into dressing ourselves up and trying to present ourselves the way we wish we were on our best day. I, like, I was like five over par one time playing golf. The next best score I have is like in the 120s. Um, but I still think that's me, five over par. And on a, on a better day than that, I could be probably like, I could shoot a 69, I bet. You know, I mean, you know, we begin to bend it that way. Like, I remember that one putt. I bet I could hit all of them that way for 18 holes, you know, on the right. So that's just who I am. So when I talk to people, it's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at golf, you know, because I want them to think I'm good at golf or, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we create this image of ourselves and we begin to bend reality. Like, I played baseball and I was good at baseball. In high school, but you know, when I was retelling it in my 20s and 30s, like you'd think I was, I was like, well, then why didn't you go to college? And I mean, did you get drafted? Like, wow, you were amazing. You know, listening to you talk about baseball, like, wow. I mean, I mean, is there a baseball card? Like, I mean, we kind of, especially when there's nobody to 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 correct our story. You know how our stories kind of morph a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Because we need to be more than we really are. And we can, we can put fingers on that. Those, there's buttons there and there's holes there and everybody's got that stuff. And um, that's where we're at. That's the starting point. We are all about self-preservation. And in that, we, we learn something about love. Okay, John 15, a little bit later, we're going to get to a famous statement where Jesus says, love has no greater example than this, that you would die for somebody. Lay down your life for a friend. If you are willing to stay on a sinking ship and put women and children on the lifeboats, uh, I bet you're going to think nothing of opening a door for somebody or giving up your seat at the front of a, uh, a bus or 
You see what I'm saying? Like if you're willing to go the whole way and, and die to self, everything from that point to this point is going to be easy. If you're not willing to do this, if you're kind of the coward guy, like the guy that, that built the Titanic, like that engineer, uh, not that engineer, but the, like, the head of that whole thing. I mean, you saw it on the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, that documentary that was really lifelike. Um, <laughs> that part was actually true that the guy who who basically built this thing, got on a lifeboat. You know, oh, oops, I, I didn't know what was happening. Someone put it, it's not my fault that I'm on a lifeboat. Everybody else died, right? If you're not willing to do that, it's a slippery slope, and pretty soon you're going to choose self at every turn. And so it's interesting. Jesus is like, look, if you're willing to die, uh, we're off to a good start. I mean, because the rest is easy. If you're not willing to do that, then you're probably not willing to do this, and you're probably not willing to do this, and you're probably not willing to do this, and you're probably not willing to give up your night out on a Friday. That's when I go to the movies. Yeah, I don't know. And then you're just choosing self at every turn. It's kind of an interesting thing. And we in America are built on this. Uh, we're, I mean, Emerson wrote an essay called Self-Reliance. You know, I mean, we're, we're built on this idea of self-reliance. We can do it. We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We love quantity. We love efficiency. We love everything that just seems to magnify us. I mean, we, uh, we prefer a, a bucket full of manure than a thimble full of gold. You know, I mean, it's the America kind of condition. And this is the starting point of self that Jesus kind of casts this metaphor into. And now he does it by borrowing language that's familiar to his audience you see at the beginning of this, he says, I am the true vine. Well, I mean, what is he talking about? True vine, like, I mean, what, what's that mean? And why doesn't he just say, I am the vine? The reason he says, I'm the true vine is because this imagery is all throughout the Old Testament. This imagery of, of the vine and branches and fruit. And so I'm going to give you a couple samplings of these verses here. And I decided earlier that I'm going to read all of uh, the first one. Um, so if you want, turn to Psalm 80. There's some cool stuff that you can mark up if you'd like to. But Psalm 80 kind of has all of this language throughout it, but let me just kind of read it. Starting in uh, verse 3, Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Now listen to what it says. So we're in a bad way, your people, um, this nation of Israel. We're in a bad way. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Um, So the nation of Israel is the vine. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches, it sent out its boughs to the sea. It shoots as far as the river. Why have, why have you broken down its walls that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and the creatures of the field feed on it. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, O God Almighty, 
Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. That's Psalm 80. So you see this thing where God has taken the nation of Israel. It's likened to a vine that's, that he plants and he tends to. And, and he's proud of it like a, the vine dresser. And, and this is a great thing and it's going to bear fruit. And, and this is his people. And, and now in some sense his rebuke has caused it to be kind of demolished and and taken away and torn down and burned, all sorts of bad things. And, there's, and then the psalmist says, You're the son of man, this, this son of yours um, at your right hand. And so there's prophetic elements there that Christ picks up on and, and uses as his own name, the son of man. He calls himself that. And then now he's going to say, I am the true vine. And do you see kind of the progression there? He's going to say, I am the vine. I'm the thing God is planting I am the thing he's going to nurture. I am the thing that's going to give life. And you now are branches in me. And if you're in me uh, and you have a part of me, then that life will flow into you, through you, and necessarily fruit will come out. You can't even stop it. It just, it just happens. But if you're disconnected from me, then there's nothing that can go on and you're just going to wither and die. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Jesus says, I am the true vine. Here's some other passages. Jeremiah 2.21. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt, wild vine? Isaiah 27, 2-3. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. So you see it's this imagery in the Old Testament of a vine that when there's faithfulness, fidelity, it, it's got this bountiful kind of harvest. And that when it's unfaithful and it's not true, it, it's withered away and, it, and it's, not, uh, it's not nurtured and it's not glorifying and it's not got the fruit. If you turn to Ezekiel chapter 15, we'll pick up on that connection a little bit more. Ezekiel chapter 15, it's, it's all about a vine metaphor. It's a very short paragraph or a chapter. And it says this, the, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, how is the wood of a vine better than that of a branch on any of the trees in the forest? Is wood ever taken from it to make anything useful? Do they make pegs from it to hang, on, uh, hang things on? And after it is thrown on the fire as fuel, and the fire burns both ends and chars the middle, is it then useful for anything? This is, again, this is Ezekiel chapter 15. If it was not, verse 5, if it was not useful for anything when it was whole, how much less can it be made into something useful when the fire has burned it and it is charred? Verse 6, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. As I have given the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest as fuel for the fire, so will I treat the people living in Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. Although they have come out of the fire, the fire will yet consume them. And when I set my face against them, you will know that I am the Lord. I will make the land desolate because they have been unfaithful, declares the Sovereign Lord. Let's read verse 8 one more time. I will make the land desolate because they have been unfaithful. So the lack of faith is causing God to make the land desolate, to discipline, to um, judge this land, these people. Now, it's, it's an interesting thing. We start with self. And God requires us to, to move out in faith and to trust 
him, to do the opposite of self-preservation, to, to follow his commands, to be obedient to him, to submit, to do things that are illogical and some, sometimes, to do things counterintuitive. And instead of fighting for ourselves, we lay down our lives and we, we love others and we treat them as greater than us. And, and instead of being proud and trying to, to compete with everybody for significance, we, again, lay down our lives and we're humble. And we do all these things that are so counterintuitive and we can't see how that's going to get us anywhere. When everybody else is cheating and you're not cheating, man, you get blown by the curve. I mean, how am I going to just keep my head above water, God? If everybody else is living one way and you expect me to live another way. And so God calls us out on faith away from self. And this feels like what? Feels like being out on a limb. George MacDonald said, fear is faithlessness. Um, when we are afraid and we want to run back to where we're comfortable, that is, that is a, a, a challenge to faith. It is, it is us wondering if God is really going to hold us up, if he's really going to be faithful. And so we feel, faith makes us feel like we're out on a limb like we're insecure, like we're not doing the things we need to do to be secure, to be significant. And it challenges kind of our paradigm. So Jesus is starting here and he uses a metaphor that's all throughout the Old Testament about faith. Are you going to trust yourself or are you going to trust God? And that's the original question, right, in the Garden of, of Eden. God says, um, look, here's the deal, this is the garden, uh, but I'm telling you, don't eat from this fruit. And the whole temptation was, uh, are you really going to listen to God? Do you really trust God? Do you really believe God? You should probably take this fruit yourself and rely on yourself and come out from underneath that position of, of trust because it's not grounded. You, you really shouldn't lean on that. God's not trustworthy. And so Adam and Eve partake of the fruit in rejection of what God has asked them to do, they are unfaithful. Does that make sense? Sin is, is unfaith. It's not believing that what God says is actually true. I think we've talked about this before, but there's really two things with faith here. There's, is, is God's character good, such that he's telling me the truth when he gives me commands? And two, does he have the power or ability to help lift me up if I'm out on this limb listening to him. So one, is his character right? And number two, do I really believe he has the power to hold me up and take care of me? And if I doubt that he knows what he's talking about by telling me to obey commands, and if I doubt that he really has the ability to take care of me, then I'm not going to trust him because he's not trustworthy. I'm not going to put my faith in him because he's not faithful. I'm not going to sit on a, on a chair if I think that one leg is suspect. Does that make sense? So faith and confidence go hand in hand. God is saying all throughout the Old Testament, you trust me, you follow me, you obey me, I'm planting here, you here, I'm going to nurture you, and it's going to bear fruit. It'll go well with you. And in the Old Testament, continuously they walked away and they didn't follow God, they didn't trust God. They trusted in themselves. Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. Um, don't trust yourself because apart from me, you can do nothing. So move towards faith. Believe me. 
I'm, I'm the true thing. Because if you move in faith towards me, then you can bear much fruit. It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, when we understand that, we understand a little bit more about how God interacts with us as people. You see, when we start here, we want God to, to move towards us. It's like the person that's trying to do jump rope, wanting the jump rope twirlers to like just all of a sudden move to where you're in the middle of the jump rope. It's confusing, I know. But like you're here and the jump rope's twirling and instead of timing it and going like, okay, I got to dive in, you just stand there and the jump rope people move. It doesn't work that way, right? But that's the way we want it. See, we think we're fundamentally good people. And there's nothing that needs to change about it. The only problem is our circumstances. You know, I, I'm, I'm pretty much a good person, but nothing seems to go my way. And, and I just need God to, like Bruce Almighty, like make all the cars get out of the way, clear the traffic, and just make it go well for me. And then I'd be even better of a person. But because I'd have time and energy and, and, and joy because things would be going my way. Or I just need God to tell me the future because if I knew the future, abracadabra kind of thing, I'd know which way to go. And then the circumstances, like, I'd just be in the right place at the right time all the time. And wouldn't that be amazing? And, and God, you'd be so cool if that happened. And, and I'd be able to tell everybody how cool you are. Man, look at what God did. Like, man, I, I'm always in the right place at the right time. Um, and we, we think we're basically good. Nothing needs to change about us. God just needs to actually do his part and, and handle the circumstances. God, br- you know, bring the rope. Okay. We make Jesus into our own image. Like, I mean, and we have to call that out because it's comfortable to sit back and put the onus on God, on Christ. You know, here I am, I'm passive, and, but I believe that you're, you're somebody cool, so come and make it all happen for me, Jesus. And, and you can see this, by the way, culture... Did I just say Jesus or see this? You can see this. They rhyme, they rhyme, so I don't know if I misspoke. You can see this by the way culture treats Jesus. Um, in the like 50s and 60s, it was cool for Jesus to be a wuss. It really was. I didn't live back then, but I've been told. Um, like, you know, the kind of guy that plays with butterflies. You know, and, and he's a wuss and all, but what a nice guy he is. And man, Jesus can be your best friend and he'll listen to you, you know, hours and hours and empathize. Oh, you know, and like Jesus is, you know, and, and it's, it's, oh, like Jesus is so nice. And then in the 70s, like with the, the Jesus movement, they were like, dude, he's got long hair and, and sandals too. He's one of us, like, and then Jesus became, like, a hippie and a homeboy and, like, you know, and, and, like, oh, he's, like, our mascot, man, like, I'm down with Jesus, the Doobie Brothers singing, I mean, isn't that an irony, the Doobie Brothers singing, Jesus is just all right with me, you know, like, yeah, like, Jesus, dude, you know, Birkenstocks, like, and then now it's, like, Jesus, I mean, if you've talked to anyone nowadays, it's, like, Jesus is a cage fighter. You know, like Mark Driscoll in Seattle, like, you know, Jesus is a cage fighter. Like, he'll, he'll, man, he'll pummel you. Like, you don't play around. He'll craft a little whip. He'll come into your house, chase you around, and, and make you heal. You know, like, Jesus is a cage fighter. And we, we make Jesus into our own image, and we do it along cultural values, and it's all part of, bring the jump rope over me, and then, then I can really be spiritual, but it won't require anything of me. 
I, I, you know, um, raise your hand when you were watching Titanic. Did you kind of go, you know, somehow, some way, if I was on the Titanic, I, I kind of wish that there was a way for me to get on one of those lifeboats? I mean, seriously, raise your hand. I, I, every time I watch that movie, I'm like, you know, there were empty spots, so it's not like I would have been taking somebody's spot. You know, like, so I wouldn't have to feel guilty. It's not like people were dying because I was on there, so I'm just smarter than a lot of people. I should have been on, you know, one of the, um, you know, Jesus, uh, you're cool. You're cool. So that, that's, that's all I need to do, right, is respect you, think you're cool, think you're like me, and now you're going to make all the circumstances work. Um, ah, it's not working, so maybe I should pray more or tell people to pray for me more or get a little bit frustrated when I pray because, by golly, it's not working, Jesus. How come I keep having more and more difficulties and more and more suffering and more and more, and ah, the circumstances aren't changing? And that's never what faith was about, was it? That was a different agenda. And we pray God into our agenda, and that's what it means to have God in a box. And to, to make God an idol almost. And we treat the God of heaven that says, man, do not lower me. Do not profane my name. Do not take my name in vain. Do not, do not treat me lightly. Don't think I serve you. Compl- that's not how it works. You serve me. Um, the planets go around the sun, not the other way around. The plane that you take off on doesn't say, hey, would all you two-year-olds listen up? Before you put on your own oxygen mask, please put on the oxygen mask of your parents first and then put your oxygen mask on. Like, God does not depend on us. God does not serve us. We are not at the center. Um, the more exalted, the higher thing, God, is who we serve who we submit to, who we lean on, who we trust, who holds us up. And the fruit that comes from that is not circumstantial. doesn't matter what the big pastor in Dallas or Atlanta uh, who has a Learjet and, you know, is in trouble with the IRS because as a pastor he's making $10 million a year. Um, it's not what that person tells you that if you really follow God, then all the circumstances are going to be wonderful and you're going to be rich. It's not the case. What is the fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit? I mean, Jesus said you're going to be poor. You're going to be kicked around. You're going to suffer. The fruit that comes is love and joy and peace. Everything we really want to be what? Grounded because we're insecure. and We need to be reconnected and on a rock, a strong tower, a fortress, all of that imagery. And it grounds us and we become secure. And secondly, all the things we need to be significant. I guarantee the thing you all really want Man, if everyone thought you were the coolest person in this room because you were authentically the best person in this room, the one that cared the most, the one that listened the most, the one that just was just, man, there's something about that person. We'd all buy that if we could pay for it at the store, which means that money is less than buying that, that thing that makes us significant. And so the fruit that comes from being in this position of faith and dependence on God is actually the stuff we really cry out for. I mean, it really is. Um, let me try and pull this back together. Um, if this is the case, we can understand a lot of suffering in our life. We all want to understand suffering. We, we want to understand the circumstances that are pushing against us. If faith is really what God is after, 
then do you think circumstances would push us towards having to have faith? It would. Um, Paul, when he's talking to King um, Agrippa in, I think, Acts 26, he's retelling the story, and he's like, man, I'm on the road. I'm on the road, bright light. I'm like, what's going on? And then I hear this voice speak to me in Aramaic, and the voice says, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, why are you kicking against the goads? Do you know what a goad, a goad was? A sharpened stick that, until the Philistines brought in, uh, like, iron, um, would have been just sharpened wood and then eventually would have been capped with metal. But it, it was a goad, just like it sounds. It's, it's pushing cattle who have really thick hides and trying to push it and poke it a little bit so that they would move in the direction they're supposed to move. And it's, it's a way of leading them where you want them to go. And cattle don't naturally go where they're supposed to go. You have to goad them in that direction. Stop pushing me. Stop goading me. Stop, um, you know what I'm saying? Like it's language that we use. It's ideas that we have. And, and, and uh, Jesus says to, to Saul, to Paul, why are you pushing back on the goads? I'm poking you over and over again, trying to steer you, and you're doing your own thing, and you're pushing back against the goads. Stop pushing back against the goads. Go where I want you to go. And we need to be able to understand life a lot better through that lens. Man, when things just keep pushing on us, we got to be able to wake up one day and say, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me? Where am I supposed to be with this? Where are you, where are you leading me? Where's all this going? And maybe I'm going to stop praying for that thorn in the flesh, that problem, that suffering, and ask, what are you doing with all this? Um, that's exactly what Paul meant when he said, I had a thorn in the flesh. I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, and then I realized God's not going to take it away. And so I asked, why is it there? And then kind of his conclusion is this, when I am weak, then I'm strong. God allowed me, we don't know what it is, but God allowed him to have some kind of ailment, some kind of physical thing that, that literally was painful to him. It was a thorn in the flesh. It, it, it was nagging and irritating and it bothered him. But what he realized is it pushed, that thorn in the flesh pushed against this so much that Paul more naturally could walk out on a limb and basically say, God, in and of myself, I'm not strong. So I'm weak, so I'm going to look to you for strength. And when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because that's when I'm closest to you. That's when my faith is the greatest. It's when I'm looking to you to sustain me. It's when I don't think I am anybody, so it's a lot easier to be humble. It's a lot easier to do what you set before me in terms of your agenda than to think, ooh, i got a good run going here. Um, let me play this, this hand of cards for a little while. It's not really in God's plan, but hey, I can't pass this up. Four aces, you know. And when I'm weak, I'm strong. So we got to understand that a lot of the suffering in our life is purposeful. Even the imagery of the vine in the Old Testament was aiming at helping these Israelites understand that faithfulness, fidelity, being away from self and trusting God, being out on a limb but believing that God has the character and the ability to fulfill the promises he's made, that that's where we have to be. And if we're not there, then he's going to have to discipline us. He can't just go, well, I'll just wait around for the next 10,000 years while nobody even talks to me or looks to me. I'll just I mean, he has to discipline it to correct it. When things go wrong, we correct them. When, when a, a bone gets broken, we fix it and then put it in splints. And God's saying is, when you don't trust me, I have to fix that. I care enough to fix that. 
God is going to push us towards faithfulness. He's going to goad us. And we have to understand that a lot of the things that pain us sometimes are guiding us. If I'm trying to teach my kid how to plug in like an electrical plug, I might take that, that kid's hand and steer it and try to plug it in. Um, it's not getting in the way. It's not nagging. It's not being a killjoy. It's saying, look, let me help you make it work. Because this appliance, unless it is plugged into that electrical circuit, will not work. It will, you can play with it all you want, you know, touch your tongue. You can do whatever you want with that plug. But if it's not into the socket, it's not going to work. And we've got our Christianity, like a little kid, I think a lot of times, experimenting, saying, isn't this fun? And, well, this week I'll try this. I'll read this book. And we're all over the map trying to make it work. And a lot of times the suffering we feel is God saying, look, let me, let me steer it. Because unless you abide in Christ, unless you get connected to Christ, unless there's a, a relationship with Christ, not just religion, unless that is organic, life will not come into you. You will not grow. You will not produce fruit. You will not even be alive. Let me steer you. Let me goad you. Let me push you towards faith. C.S. Lewis once said, Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. Because if we basically think religion is just about getting cool things for ourselves, heaven is the opposite of that. A mercenary doesn't care about this war. They're just fighting this war for money. Does that make sense? That's the definition of a mercenary. And Lewis, C.S. Lewis used this word mercenary a lot. And he's basically saying, if you're into religion just for the profits of religion, just to because you think you're going to get some good stuff out of it. The essence of religion isn't getting stuff out of it that's going to burn, that doesn't matter, that chases you from God anyways. The essence of religion is being in relationship with Christ. Okay, He's the vine, we're the branches. So heaven is the ultimate expression of that. So there's nothing in heaven that a mercenary soul can desire. Do you guys get the logic there? I mean, the dangerous question is, do we have a mercenary faith? Do I have a mercenary faith? Am I in this just trying to see what I can get from it? Um, Or is the the chief object of my desire um, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? To be connected in relationship. And if that means laying aside myself and trusting Him, walking out in faith, then I'll do it because the only thing I really want is to be with God. So heaven offers nothing a mercenary soul can desire. Let's read this passage one last time, John 15. Um, It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. This is the summation verse. I am the vine, you are the branches. And if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And so I had Tom help me out with a little artwork here. um, Because what we have to understand from this passage is what Jesus is saying is that the felt reality of being out on a limb is actually something different. It's, it's, um, yeah, I'll make a joke of it. It's, it's moving further and further and closer and closer to a vine that's going to sustain us and actually hold us up and actually be our security and our significance. That out on a limb here, the irony is, the spiritual irony, means closer to Christ which is actually our life, which is actually the thing that anchors us. Does that make sense? We get so afraid out here. 
I mean, he, I mean Paul, the, he, the writer of the Hebrews and Paul over and over is like, man, here's where you need like a community of believers to hold you up and to tell you don't turn back, don't shrink back, don't neglect the habit of meeting together, don't go back to the old life. You got to continue on because Christ will sustain you. This is the living vine and when you plug in here through faith, abide in him, then it's, it's, it's just, man, it will take over. And it will transform you and it will bring life and you will bear fruit and everything changes. And there's a scary part between Egypt and Israel called the desert. And it's there in, in the life of every believer where you finally go, look, I gave God a bunch of stuff, but I kept my good marbles behind. And there's a, there's a time, there's a day, and it might be today when you finally go, okay, I got to give them all the marbles. And that's really, really super scary because i got nothing left and I'm out on a limb. But there's always a season in the, the life of a believer where you have to go all in and it means you leave behind the old thing, Egypt, and then it's real scary through the desert. Is God really going to deliver? It might be one year, it might be two years, it might be ten years. Is God really going to deliver? And then eventually God, you begin to realize, man, there's fruit everywhere. My relationships, my own self, my relationship with God, my ability to do the things I want to do, to be the kind of person I want. It's, man, there's a joy, there's a peace, but there was a desert. Um, do you trust God enough to walk through that desert, to let go of everything, to abandon yourself, to submit, to turn and repent, to follow Christ, to abide in Him? Um, it's a real question today. I want to read for you. It's the, by the way, this is the gospel I was asked a question in Redux on text message. I didn't get to answer it. The question was, um, is the sinner's prayer biblical? And the answer is no. Absolutely not. Okay, the sinner's prayer is, um, Jesus come into my heart, and then ipso facto I said the magic words, I'm, I'm saved for the rest of my life, doesn't matter what I do, got my sinner's insurance. Absolutely not biblical. It, it came from the revivalist tradition um, where it talks about Jesus knocking on the door and if you let him in, and it was written to a church that wasn't inviting Jesus into their meetings. And it says, and he's saying, look, you're, you're naked and you're blind, you're poor, let me be a part of your fellowship. But that's the verse that's on the bottom of the in and out cups if you go to California. Um, and the, the, the number one phrase, even though there's intimations of Christ dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit, the word and the phrase all throughout the New Testament is us being in Christ this is the body of Christ, and he's the head, and we are in him. We go where he leads. He doesn't go where I go because he's in me. He's like a little trapped genie in my heart, and I take him everywhere. And I don't mean to, to be sarcastic, but I absolutely do. It, it is so destructive of faith to think that we can make God dance by saying a formula. It is so destructive of faith. And, and I have no idea where I was going, but the whole point is this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what faith looks like, and it's a beautiful thing. And, and many will shrink back, and God will necessarily have to discipline a person because he can't allow that to be what it looks like. But he will affirm and encourage and nurture and, and, and shepherd us into this relationship where we are connected to a life source that changes everything. That's good news. It's good news. It's not a formula. It's not a 20-second prayer where nothing changes in your life other than now you can pretend that you can sin and it doesn't matter. This is, this is 
biblical saving faith where you let go of the old life, you die to your sins, you're raised in Christ, the imagery of baptism. This is the gospel and it's super killer good news. Um, but you got to decide if you're all in. If you're really willing to have faith, because, man, faith is, is um, some scary stuff. And we need each other to affirm that, to encourage it, to share testimonies, to help make that a reality. We're going to close by reading a prayer from Reinhold Niebuhr. This is a famous prayer. Alcoholics Anonymous adopted the first three lines. A lot of times you'll see it as listed anonymous. It's not. It's Reinhold Niebuhr, the same guy that we read that quote earlier from. Um, it's a prayer he penned, and the whole of the prayer, I think, is a wonderful illustration of this tension of living in the middle here, trying to let go of, of self and to abide in Christ. You know, as Paul said, for me to, um, to live is Christ. It's, if I'm going to live, if I'm going to be, be this Christian, it is Christ's life in me, period. And through me and around me, that's all I want to grab hold of. And this is what Niebuhr says. Let's read it on the board. You can read along. And then the band's going to come up, and um, we're going to take the offering. But Niebuhr says this, God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things which should be changed, and wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it to be. Trusting that you will make all things right and that if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen.